A recent interview we had with the Project on Government Oversight, or POGO, said agency inspectors general are not prepared to oversee the hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure spending coming their way. My next guest disagrees. She's the Assistant Inspector General for Audits at the EPA, Catherine Trimble. Ms. Trimble, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. And before we get into the details here, tell us the connection of EPA and infrastructure, because I think people tend to think, well, this is all transportation department. Sure. No, thanks for asking. So really the connection between infrastructure and the EPA is water, our clean water and our drinking water are, um, you know, delivery systems, sewage systems, what you've heard in the news about Flint, Michigan, or Benton Harbor, Michigan, communities getting lead in their water, or um, just the need to upgrade sewage facilities so things continue to smoothly moving forward. And therefore, EPA will oversee a significant piece of grant funding to localities that are seeking to upgrade water? That's right. So EPA is getting about $60 billion uh, through the Infrastructure Act, and that'll be over a five-year period. And just for a little bit of context, you know, this is a significant increase over the amount of funding that EPA tends to manage on a daily basis. Their budget, you know, for the past number of years has really been about 8 to $9 billion a year. So this additional $60 billion, even over a five-year period, is a significant increase for EPA and their responsibilities. Of that $60 billion, about $55 billion will be administered through grants and other assistance agreements through the states, tribes, um, and, and others. And then about 83% of the funding is allocated for water infrastructure projects that will be administered through the states. And you mentioned state and tribal. Does it get down to, say, a municipality could apply for these grants also or a county? Absolutely. So EPA um, sends the funding to the states and then the states administer the funding more discreetly out to local communities. So 83% of $55 billion out of $60 billion then is water. <laughs> And either way, it's a lot more than EPA is used to overseeing and also granting. You know, there's a big function both on the oversight and the granting originality there. So what does the agency, what are you doing? What do you need to do to gear up? Let's talk about personnel first, uh, human capital, to be able to handle this task. Sure. Uh, So... We are, you know, both we and the agency are in hiring mode right now. You know, we are hiring uh, folks really across our office, but predominantly in our audit evaluations and investigations uh, groups to help us conduct the oversight that needs to be done. We are hiring our traditional staff for audit and evaluations and investigations, but also, you know, some specialties. We've set aside some room to hire specialists to help us really dig into some of these funding areas um, where EPA will become. The original grant itself has to be free of original sin if the money is going to be spent correctly down the line. Right. And so in that regard, we're planning our oversight in three phases to oversee, you know, this this funding. And the first phase is really it's about talking with the agency, talking with our other colleagues out there in the oversight community and planning. So one of the first things we started doing is as far back as last November and December was talking with EPA about about their plans for gearing up to manage this funding. We actually our office of investigations has been providing fraud awareness briefs to EPA since starting back in December and really hearing from them what they feel they need to do. I mean, EPA, to its credit, is aware this is a lot, you know, and and they realize they really need to step up to, you know, manage this historic amount of funding they're getting. So really just talking about their plans and the risks involved 
And to that extent, um, we're, we're providing lessons learned. So right now we're going back through our reports from the past, um, again, across audit evaluation and investigations and pulling together. What can we remind EPA about deficiencies in the past that they need to remember as they move forward to administer these grants and other assistance agreements? We're speaking with Catherine Trimble. She's Assistant Inspector General for Audits at the EPA. So you have to have the human capital both on the granting end and on the auditing post post-grant end to make sure that everything is done right. What about procedures, data systems, other capacity outside of people that you might need to make sure these grants are spent correctly? Right. This is part of, you know, the grants lessons learned that we're pulling together for the agency. We know to the point you raise about workforce, we know that EPA has struggled with some grant workforce issues in the past, getting the right people into the right position, making sure they're trained, making sure they know what the requirements are. And then systems. We've actually issued a report just recently looking back at the CARES Act, but looking at calling out deficiencies within EPA's grants management system and its ability to have the right information available to the right people at the right time. Further, we are one of the few, if not the last one left of the OIGs that directly does the financial statement audit for the organization, for the agency we oversee. And we have a lot of information through our financial statement audit work to, you know, again, remind EPA of um, related to its financial systems and, you know, what it needs to do and what it needs to remember to be able to track this funding carefully, accurately moving forward. And are the requirements in these grants that the localities that receive them have to do regular reporting on what's going on? Yes, those are traditional requirements that go out through grant awards. And Typically it works, you know, we do a lot of work in that area going in and looking at, okay, did this recipient ultimately provide the reporting it was supposed to provide to document that yes, it spent the funds as intended and got the intended outcomes. So we do, we do have existing mechanisms that we'll continue to use moving forward. I also would mention, you know, the OMB guidance that came out in April on effective stewardship of IHAA resources, Infrastructure Act resources, you know, is is telling federal agencies, reminding them that they need to be prepared to collect data down to the subaward level. So, you know, we talked about EPA grants that go out to the states. Well, you can't just stop at the money you gave to the states. You need to be able to continue that oversight down to what we refer to as the subrecipient. But that's the community that receives, say, those funds to upgrade its sewer system. We need to be able to track all the way down to that level to make sure that we've realized the intended results of that funding. So you know who they spend money with in terms of, say, contractors to know that they are legitimate? That would be information that we'd be interested in tracking. And we do do work in that area, too, looking at, you know, ultimately, where where did the communities put this money? And if it was into contracts, you know, were those contracts meeting the required terms? That is all on the table. That kind of gets into, I mentioned our three phases of oversight. Some of that, you know, there's the upfront, making sure EPA and the intended recipients know what to do on the on the back end, you know, and grants can, grants can be alive for a very long time. But we'll be there at the end as these grants are being closed out to go in and really look and make sure did these recipients provide um, the the sufficient documentation to show that they spent the funds as intended and again achieved the um, intended outcomes. It strikes me there's a couple of things you have to look at. They could get the intended outcome and the water is good and the pipes are good and so Mm -hmm. forth, but they might have blown way too much money getting there. On the other hand, they could spend exactly to the penny that they should have, yet the water's still dirty at the end. So you really have more than one simple 
criterion for judging whether the money was, in fact, used correctly. Absolutely, yes. And what about the EPA itself on the grant-making side, which is not the inspectors gen- not the inspector general's office, but EPA water part division? Are they also staffing up to be able to handle the volume of grant-making that they'll have to make, again, to prevent that original sin that you'll find later in auditing? Yeah, absolutely. EPA is very much in um, the throes of, as many across the federal government are with the Infrastructure Act, um, in the throes of of hiring and, and increasing its staff to make sure that it can perform the oversight it needs to. Catherine Trimble is Assistant Inspector General for Audits at the EPA. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thanks so much for having us on. It was a pleasure talking with you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. You can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same. Uh, Whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me. And he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, um, you know, from hi- historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. 
It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.